Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Hey, it's Ryan from The Prolific Creator, where we talk about life and art and see what sticks. Well, hello, my friends. Today, I am so excited to share with you a new episode with Ali Michael and Eleonora Bartoli as they talk about their new book, In Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. That's right, white people. We're going to talk about racism today, and that's not a hot topic. Of course it is. And it's important that they've written this book from fellow white folks who have written this book, a very important topic, a very important subject. And Allie and Eleonora have tackled this subject with grace and honesty. And you're going to love this interview because this interview is about telling stories. It's about doing the hard thing. It's about touching things that we're not supposed to touch and talk about, but they're going to do it and they're going to help us. And I love interviewing folks like Eleanor and Allie because they're doing the hard work, they're doing the generous thing, even though when it's difficult, even though when it's hard. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation. It is jam-packed with all kinds of stories, conversations, and helpful tips and tricks on writing, but also on how to tell true and hard stories. And so I think you're really, really, really going to love this. So I don't want to waste any more of your time. And without further ado, let's get to my little chat with Eleanor Bartoli. Well, welcome everyone to the Prolific Creator Podcast. Uh, this is Ryan. So glad that you're here again. And I want to welcome in a couple new friends uh, that are going to talk about their book today. And uh, why don't you, instead of me trying to uh, explain all the things that you guys are up to and your backgrounds, why don't you both say hello, whoever wants to go first and tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what the work is you're doing. Thanks, Ryan. Um, So my name is Allie Michael. I use she, her pronouns, and I am uh, the co-director of the Race Institute for K-12 Educators. So most of my time 
I work with schools to try to make the research on race and education more accessible to teachers, because in general, most of the research on race and education is either very hard to find. It's in, locked behind journals kept in universities or it's um, it just raises our our uh, blood pressure so much that we don't want to read it. <laughs> we try to like keep it at arm's length. So I try to make it more accessible to people who are in classrooms. And, and I also focus on a whiteness and what can white people do? What, if you're a white person, what's your racial story? And, um, and like, how does race come up in your classroom, for example, because we know in the U S 85% of the teachers are white. And so it's important to think about, um, whiteness in the classroom, but it's also something we often don't talk about. So that's that's generally what I do with my time. And I'm Eleonora Bartoli. I also use she, her pronouns, and um, I've known Annie for a very long time. We have been collaborating for, I don't know, almost 20 years now. Um, before I was officially a clinical psychologist, which is my primary home these days, I spent 15 years in academia as a uh, a professor and the director of a graduate program in counseling, where I really focused on uh, multicultural counseling competence and how to integrate social justice principles into the counseling process. Um, and in 2019, I stepped out of academia after a really good run, and um, I wanted to continue my practice and also provide some consulting services and support for folks at the front line of social justice uh, using some of the tools of um, trauma-informed tools for resilience building. The, the, the path on um, an anti-racist path and the path of social justice is intense, as we keep saying, is an intense path. And I think we can use some, uh, some ways of uh, supporting ourselves as we walk it and support each other as we walk it. Well, Eleanor, I really appreciate you and Ali and the work that you're doing. So thanks for coming on the show. And Eleanor, we we were bonding over being Italian. Um, <laughs> yes. and you might be able to tell Eleanor's uh, accent a little bit. Uh, but uh, I grew up in, in Los Angeles and uh, I was really excited to have you guys on the show because I, I grew up in a very multicultural uh, school setting. And I remember just being, and those that most of this is just audio, but you know, those that will see the video at some point can see that I'm a white man. Um, and, uh, but I was always the minority in class. And so I had this early lesson of different cultures and being an Italian family and, and African-American, Hispanic, actually my elementary school in Long Beach, California was one of the most diverse actually in the country and represented almost every country you can imagine. And so I just thought that was normal. I just thought kids are kids and we are different and we have different stories and that's just normal. And then I lived around the country and moved to different places and the conversation shifted and we're different and people have different opinions about people and backgrounds and cultures. And so, uh, so I've been really looking forward to just thinking through this with you and reflecting on this together. And I'm really glad that um, one of the main reasons we brought you on the show is because we want to talk about your book, uh, In Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. And uh and, you know, very light topic, uh, very easy uh, conversation to have. So um, this is probably one of the more easy, you know, interviews I've done. Uh, <laughs> but even the title, the title alone uh, will raise some some eyebrows. Uh, but I want to talk to you. You've obviously been friends a long time and you've been working together a long time. Uh, where did the seed of this idea uh, come about? Like, when did kind of the conversation say, hey, we need to write a book together on a very uh, mild subject? <laughs> I can think of two moments. One was uh, when we first met, which was at a conference on race and racism, and we were in a workshop where there was this idea that white people could help other white people learn about racism that neither of us had ever heard about. This is like 20 years ago. And this strange stranger, 
<laughs> she's not strange, but she was a stranger. <laughs> turns to me and says, do you want to start a group? And we can learn about racism together and we can practice anti-racism. And um, I, I had been kind of watching Eleonora through the conference and she was very bold and she said what she thought and she got things wrong and she wasn't afraid to get things wrong and learn. And I was like, yes, I would love that. And you are definitely the person I'd love to do that with. And so we, that was the beginning of our process was having a group together, a very intimate group. We read books about racism together once a month for years with just a couple other folks. And, um, and it's really shaped our lives and our paths, you know, the, the way we talk to our children about race, the way we, uh, where we shop, where we send our kids to school, what what kind of work we do and how we do it. And um, and so that friendship has been really important to also, you know, most of our work individually is with people of color and Native people. And so it's been important when we make mistakes, when we get things wrong, to be able to come back to one another and say, oh, I did this thing. And to get some support. It's almost like, you know, we fall down and there's somebody else there to pick us up again and say like, not it's okay. You did nothing wrong, but let's process what happened and let's process how you can fix it. And also don't worry, you're not alone. I've done something like that too. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing. But then the second piece was really, um, we were both about to have kids and we were asking this question, how do you talk to white kids about race? We'd both read all the books that were available, which was like, I think two at the time. And um, Howard Stevenson, who's one of my mentors at Penn, said, uh, you guys should do research on this. You should run interviews with families with white teens and find out how are people, how are white people socializing their kids to talk or not talk about race? And so that was that's a that's a um, big part of our work together that then um, is also folded into the book where we have two chapters on uh, talking to kids about race or thinking about how you were talked to when you were a kid. You know, if you don't have kids, those chapters might still really resonate. And I would add maybe a more recent uh, moment in some ways, sort of a build up, but um, as the conversation around race has become much more uh, divisive and as the intensity has, has grown in the last few years, I think you and I Lee, have had a lot of conversations about the dif difficulty really of entering such conversation. You kept saying, why can't people can do this? And I tell them all this background and I give them all these tools. And I said, yes, but you can do it because you have all these internal skills of emotional regulation and all these ways to that you have built your empathy to connect with the folks that, that are in front of you. So when we come to each other with some mistakes or blunders or things that we are not sure about, we know that even though we're going to be challenged, we're also going to be held in a sort of loving relationship that allows us to do the work that we do. And so we, we're really talking about how the inner work and the outer work are not separate. They really have to happen at the same time. And there are very specific tools that we use to try to stay in those really hard conversations. And I think you were saying, Ryan, you know, um, how not to be afraid. This is in our, in our little conversation before we started. How not to be afraid. And the point I think we want to make that it's completely okay to be afraid. And it's completely okay to be activated. In fact, we are trained to be afraid of it. We're trained to be active. Um, but there are ways in which we can build tools and skills and to have the courage and boldness to do it, just like we do for many other things in life. Uh, and we don't want to stop doing those 
using those tools and doing those bold things when it comes to a topic that, yes, indeed, is very polarized. And so Ali, who is a, a very well-known author, said, why don't we write a book together? <laughs> and, uh, and the rest is history. <laughs> So, uh, so the relationship started like 20 years ago or so, I have that right. And, uh, you know, you're starting to have kids, you're starting to have these conversations. Um, now I imagine, uh, most people that write books or most people that get into certain kinds of work, uh, there was probably a experience or a circumstance or something maybe even beyond just having kids that really drove you to dig into the, this subject. Um, like Eleonora, obviously you're doing a lot of academic work around it and Allie, you're helping teachers and kids. And um, I mean, what, what was there ever anything in your life that really kind of motivated you to say like, this is the kind of work I want to do because I don't feel like white folks can really um, have these conversations and yet they're allowed to and should, and it's right and good. I mean, is there anything that you can point to that goes, yeah, this kind of launched me into this, this career path or, or teaching or writing or thinking about this? You know, it's so funny when Eleanor and I met, I think I had already been thinking about race in a really critical way for about seven years. So it's funny to realize how still unskilled I was <laughs> seven years after the beginning. So again, two major points for me, one was going to college having grown up in a almost a hundred percent white community really raised in a very explicit way to um, not talk about race, not think about racism, to be colorblind. It's actually the racists who talk about race. If you're a good white person, you don't talk about race. So I got to college. I was at, you know, it was required credit to take a course on African-American literature and suddenly I'm in this class where I'm asked to do all these things I was socialized not to do. And I come up against my body saying, don't do it. Don't finish that sentence. Don't say that word you might offend, you know, and that's where all the fear came up because I was doing something I had been taught not to do. And at some point, somebody turned to me and said, what about you, Allie? What's your racial story? And I remember just kind of stumbling, stumbling, bumbling, like, I don't know white people don't have racial stories. I don't know. I mean, like my parents didn't use racial slurs. So what's my racial story? I don't know. Um, today, I would tell you my racial story is that I grew up in an almost all white community. And those don't happen by accident in such a multiracial nation um, that I was raised with what um, I was raised to be colorblind, that um uh, that I was raised not to see race, not to talk about it. All of that is part of my racial story. So there's a lot I would say today is part of my racial story that I didn't see back then. But then the thing that I think clinched it, that made me just want to continue to understand this thing called race was um, living abroad in South Africa in my junior year of college and meeting a Black South African woman named Gertrude Squentu, who asked me to write her life story and we spent two years working on her life story in which she just kind of, I mean, she just told me her story. And then my part in the writing was to contextualize the law and the policy in South Africa that was happening or that was dictating some of the things that were happening in her life as a black South African growing up in the 1970s and 80s. And I just realized how damaging racist policy is that um, that teaches us to internalize the racial hierarchy, to believe that white people are better than people of color, to believe that black people are inferior and unintelligent and fit for um, fit for, you know, menial labor or athletics. And I 
because it was so magnified in South Africa, I was able to really feel it and see it and be offended by it. And maybe also because it wasn't my context, <laughs> I was able to like not feel responsibility for it, but I would get righteously angry and then realize, wait a second, I'm white in a country where we have a similar history. It's not quite as recent, but it's similar. And there's probably a lot I'm not seeing about how I benefit from that history. And that's what made me want to come back and learn that uh, better. And then Gertrude, she's still my friend. I mean, we talk every couple of days um, and it is in that friendship and in knowing her. um, I think that just motivates me to continue to recognize how many friendships and relationships I don't have and many white people don't have because we've grown up in these artificially segregated communities where we think uh, we think this is the norm. And actually, it's not the norm. It's a very socially constructed reality. Eleanor, anything you want to add from your experience? <laughs> Obviously, my experience is so radically different because I grew up in Italy uh, since I was 19. And I would say in Italy, uh, at my time, this is no longer the case, but it was a very homogeneous country. Uh, and I remember coming to the U.S. and, you know, I didn't speak English and I had no idea about American culture. So I was bumping into all sorts of norms that, uh, you know, I was saying the wrong thing to the wrong people all the time, making the wrong gestures because <laughs> we gesture a lot. And um, and as I was asking questions and trying to figure out, you know, the norms so I could navigate my life, there were some questions that became very clear they were not welcomed. So any questions around race? So we didn't have any uh, politically correct language in Italy. Just the concept didn't, ex- didn't exist. And so I just was asking all the questions. For example, when I went uh, in a training setting where all the psychiatrists and all the psychologists were white and all the uh, nursing staff and the majority of the patients were people of color and native people. And uh, and I simply asked, oh, I just wonder what that's about. And the prompt response from my supervisor at the time was, you must be racist for just asking the question and noticing. I'm like, how can you not notice? It's just the most obvious divide. And many other small things of that nature where sometimes I might have said racist thing because I was internalizing all the messages and simply reproducing them, trying to understand the culture. But no matter how what I was asking, what I was doing, I was given the message that I wasn't supposed to belong in the conversation, that I nothing to contribute that I could put I couldn't know anything about it and to basically step back and not speak and that's very hard for me (laughs) to do in general but I also love people I love to connect and I love to interact and uh, it wasn't until I saw an iconic uh, documentary which I'm sure a lot of people will will remember which is The Color of Fear by filmmaker Lee Munoir and there's a character in that uh documentary called David and he asks all the wrong questions and you can tell that he's just completely putting his phone in his mouth the whole time and I knew that but I didn't know any of the answers and so I was literally pending by his lips thinking what how are they going to answer it how are they going to handle this and in some ways the dynamics and the answers that I that I really learned through that documentary and then from that point on explained so much of what I see in other kind of isms and so they made so much sense and they opened so many views of reality that felt so much more real that I just couldn't go back to thinking about anything else since then and um yeah 
Well, that's I, my path. I, yeah, I appreciate you telling uh, telling your stories, at least a few uh, pieces of it, because I think that that's always usually what drives kind of writing and creativity and our work is there's usually some, you know, people that start cancer foundations, it's usually because they had cancer or they had a loved one who passed away from cancer. And um, and those things kind of keep us motivated and keep us going. Uh, one thread I, I heard in both of your stories, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea because I, I see it in my own life, is when there's something we don't understand um, fear can creep in. And when there's fear, then it's easy just to shut down and say, well, I'm just going to become indifferent to it or just ignore it or use, use words or try to soften the blow and say, well, we don't need to talk about racism because we're not racist. And we're, you know, and it's all of what Martin Luther King talked about is being, um, you know, the opposite of love isn't hate it's indifference, you know, and it's, it's the idea that we just, maybe we just kind of dance around it, but not really engage it and talk about it, then it'll go away. But, but usually it's, it's born out of fear. Um, cause, cause like, I appreciate Eleonora, your, your tenacity to say, Hey, I'm going to stumble around. I'm going to ask the wrong questions. I'm going to fall on my face, but that's exactly what we have to do with hard, uh, questions and, um, and issues and whatever the, the subject may, may be. Uh, so I appreciate you guys uh, sharing a little bit of that. And, um, you know, one of the things, uh, when we were talking specifically about the book, there's a, a quote, um, and I don't know how much you guys get into this in, the, in your actual book, but it, it was talking about James Baldwin and Toni Morrison. I actually just read uh, Beloved uh, for one of my my classes. I'm doing a, uh, some doctoral work, and that was one of our texts, and, um, and it said that racism is a white person problem. It, it won't change until white people see how it hurts them too. And I was really intrigued by that idea because I think both those writers kind of uh, reflected a lot on that, that it wasn't just something we can just ignore because it doesn't affect us, or maybe it's not as big a deal as we think it is, but it actually affects us too, as uh, fellow white folk. <laughs> um, can you speak to that? Like, like, how do we kind of unpack that? How do we think, how does it benefit us to just engage in this kind of work and these conversations? Yes. Well, it's funny because you said at the beginning, you know, the, the title, Our Problem, Our Path, could kind of make people feel like it, it can be kind of a, um, a an intense title. But for me, like the idea that racism is a white person problem is so liberating because when I heard that quote, racism is a white person problem, it's not going to change till white people do something about it. I was like, of course, like sexism is not a woman's problem or a non-binary person's problem it's a like it's not going to change until men do something about it or like transphobia is not going to change until cisgender people do something about it because it's not it's it's not coming from the group that is that is targeted by it you know and so of course racism is a white person's problem but i always like one of the things i grew up with one of the messages was racism is somebody else's problem it's either the overt racist or it's like the person experiencing it. And as long as we're not causing it, we should just stay away. It's like, it's sad that other people have to deal with it, but it's not really about us. And I felt like James Baldwin's quote was saying, no, this is your problem and you got to do something about it. Um, and so then I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I'll do something, but what do I do? <laughs> and as a white person, what, you know, like, I don't want to like step on people's toes. I don't want to I don't want to be in the wrong. I want to go in my own lane, but I want to go very fast in my own lane. And then Toni Morrison and others say, yeah, but also you have to understand this hurts you too, because it's not just your problem. Like you have to, you have to solve it. It's like, this hurts you too. Ibram X. Kendi says something similar, 
like um, the ideal white ally would realize that they're working on their own behalf when they work against racism. And there's a, a ton of different ways this happens. I think it's important for each of us to answer the question ourselves. For me, I can look at, um, again, like friendships that um, that really didn't grow and develop because I was unskilled racially. Um, and that translated to like fear of black men that I didn't have, that I have friendships with white men from college and not from black, not with black men, in part because of a of biases that I grew up with that I hadn't worked out, I hadn't addressed yet. Um, but it's also, um, you know, I mean, there's so much research on the ways in which we uh, are bet we're better problem solvers when we are learning in diverse environments that our organizations are more effective when we have diverse groups. But when we don't have the skills for racial competency to be contributing members of a healthy multiracial organization or a school, then we don't we can't benefit from th that. Um, I think historically of all the people of color and native people. Um, and all the cultural contributions from people of color and native people that really like never got to be part of the American mainstream because of um, various prejudices and discrimination against those groups, but also the ways in which people were just flat out denied education and opportunity. Um, it's clear to me that we're very easy to manipulate as a voting public when we are more invested um in racism than we are in healthy multiracial community. And so um so for all of those reasons I think um I find I find anti-racism to be liberating and I know it can feel like a scary word but I feel like anti-racism is a love movement. Mm -hmm. And the more I've worked in anti-racism um or anti-racist communities it, they've just been <laughs> they've been spaces full of connection and and liberation um that like and when i say liberation like just so culturally different from my own upbringing where um i just feel excited by the possibilities in the communities that i'm a part of and um and i you know i think that um so often we don't want to join anti-racist movements because we think it's all about like marching carrying a sign getting the words right you know knowing the accurate history seeing your owning your privilege, whatever, whatever it is, like we have all this association with it that just kind of leaves a little sick feeling in our stomach. And like, oh, I don't really, that doesn't sound fun. I don't, it doesn't even sound interesting. Actually, I'll, I'll stay away. Thank you. Um, and, and I really want to emphasize the ways in which this is a love movement and it's, it's, it's actually worth some of the learning that we have to do in order to be a part of it. Not to not to the beautiful answer that Alisa had. <laughs> I love, I love the idea of uh, a love movement because uh, I think this, you know, and again, I'm I'm not the expert as you guys are, so I'm not going to pretend I am. Uh, but I know uh, a big piece of your work. I know, uh, you know, why you wrote some of this book too was to help people understand it's not just to have information, um, but it's to develop love, develop empathy, because I think that's where change really can and does happen. It's it's through your your own experience of falling on your faces, seeing things that just didn't line up with what you believed or what how you grew up. And then something in, internally kind of kind of switches on because I think there is a lot of information and I don't think anybody's going, 
well, if we just had more knowledge about it, then we'll just automatically change. Right. And, and I know Eleanor, like you're a, a counselor and, and there's, there's head, there's heart, there's soul, there's all this upbringing worldview, all that you bring to the table, right. When you counsel people, like we're these whole embodied beings and it, it takes more than just getting the right information because think about all the dumb things we do. Like we know that speeding's wrong, but we still do it. You know, <laughs> we, you know, so there has to be something deeper that happens inside of us. Um, and so Ali keep, preaching, uh, the love movement. I love that. Um, so, so when you, um, maybe this is a similar question, but, but, uh, or comment, uh, when you think about the book and, and what you hope to get out of it, um, and, and maybe this is a, I'll save that for a second. The question actually is more, um, just what I've noticed about why is it so hard to have what I would call civil conversations about race, uh, whether white, black, native American, whatever, background we are um without it just going off the rails like it feels like i mean i know we have social media we have internet and those aren't always great places to have these conversations but they can have they can happen but it just seems like we it's either like all or nothing <laughs> it's, it's either um we, we can do it in a loving kind of way or it's just like it's venom it's it's attack it's you don't know anything a little bit of your story eleanor like what are you talking about what are you saying what are you doing you know um but how do you why can't we do it in a civil way like why is this such a hard thing for us to do any thoughts on that <laughs> Yes, <laughs> many thoughts on that. Um, the first thing to understand is that their reaction that is called from us is not uh, doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we, I love your podcast partly because we talked about the power of narratives and why supremacy as an ideology that this country really was founded on really has a lot of narratives about what uh, individualism and people are self-made and meritocracy and all certain things that really prime you to think about the world in very different ways. So when you come and challenge me on one of the ways in which I have learned to feel good about myself and to feel safe and to feel welcome and to feel like I belong, for example, if somebody told me, well, nice that you got, nice that you got tenure, but you're a white woman. And I said, well, how dare you? <laughs> I worked really hard for my tenure. And let me tell you, I did work for my tenure and my promotions, um, but all the doors open when I walk through them. No one challenged my intelligence. No one challenged my work. No one challenged uh, whether I was worthy of those recognitions. And I was working very closely because of the kind of work that I do. We call it a caller who, and I can think of two in particular who were definitely, you know, when you, I, I feel really good about myself, but I know when someone I'm out of my league. <laughs> Somebody's just smarter, you know. Um, and especially one of them, I thought, oh my God, they're going to be stolen by a, a, a bigger university at any time. She was given so such a hard time uh, at every step of her process. And and another colleague of mine uh, said that, that she received so much pushback from the very same people that I thought they're incredible allies. They respond to me so nicely. So partly we have to understand that we walk... Uh, to almost two different realities and I would not have any clue about the other reality if uh, my friends of color or native friends would not actually tell me you know what happened to me this is my experience of the world so when you challenge me if I don't know that I don't know anybody else's re reality I haven't in entered in, in relationship or in an empathic zone <laughs> with anybody else I would say no I'm not what's wrong with you I feel attacked and when we feel attacked as human beings in a human body our defense system comes up it's just what happens. So it comes up whether I feel like I'm challenged in my goodness 
in my sense of belonging, in my sense of worthiness, deservedness, or it gets challenged where I'm attacked physically. But sometimes, it, but that part of our nervous system actually doesn't recognize the difference. So of course it's divisive. You, you tell me something that I've learned to attach, oh my goodness, to it. you tell me that that's not right. Then I feel bad and I tell you, no, you are bad. You're wrong. <laughs> And so it's almost any anti-racist piece of knowledge or any anti-racist interaction or challenge to white supremacy feels like an attack to those of us who have learned to attach our belonging and our goodness to a a set of principles that are in fact quite unfair. And so in, in some ways, we cannot really bypass that part of our humanity. We can bypass the fact that we have those reactions, but we have so many beautiful, simple, accessible tools to actually deal with that. And so I think what we are asking sometimes, especially those of us who are white, why don't you for signs of wokeness either is attacking, so giving up in that way to that, uh, giving into that reactivity, or is to somehow appear smooth and cool as a cucumber when you talk about race and racism. I still get nervous. I've been out for 20 years. I don't know anybody who's uh, cool as a cucumber talking about racism because it's it's we are still constantly on a daily basis socialized into this juice of white supremacy that keeps telling us something is wrong with this anti-racist conversation. You know, Ryan, I, I loved how you said, like, I grew up in Long Beach in one of the most racially diverse places in the world. And I just thought it was normal. Meanwhile, I grew up in Mount Lebanon, a suburb of Pittsburgh, uh, that was almost 100% white. And at first, when I went to college, I thought that was abnormal. And the more I've talked to white people, the more I've realized there's a lot of white people who grew up in almost 100% white communities or at least 90% plus. And um, so a lot of white people in the U.S. have been socialized around race in very similar ways. And like Eleonora said, we often live in different worlds from people of color and Native people and don't see the the systemic racism they're experiencing. So it's just invisible to us. Then we're socialized within a racial hierarchy. This is another way of saying, you know, we're we're marinated in the juices of white supremacy. We're, we're, we grow up in this racial hierarchy that's invisible to us, that says white people are... I mean, that historically said white people are better and deserve more access to resources, opportunity, education than all other groups of people. And so we start to like internalize that, but it's invisible to us. And so when that's challenged, it's it's very I think it's very confusing. And for the people who are challenging it, it's like, oh, no, I had like. I just challenged somebody yesterday. I challenged somebody last week. I challenged somebody last month and I keep getting the same response because all these white people were actually socialized in the same ways. And so the response over and over again is what? There's no racism. I don't see this. We shouldn't be talking about this, you know? And I think it's really exhausting, which is why the conversation sometimes goes downhill. But I also think the reason, so so I also think this is part of what the book's about. Whether or not the conversation is civil, what we want to be able to do is say that people of color and Native people should be able to tell us what's happening to them, should be able to give us insight into their world, into the racism they're experiencing, and we should be able to hear it no matter how they say it. No matter what, no matter how they say it or what part of it we're responsible for, we should be able to listen. And the reason, the way we're going to be able to do that is when white people can support one another, because it can be very hard to hear it. And we can say, no, like, hold my hand, walk me through the history I never learned. 
talk to me kindly. I, I want to hear this, but not if you're angry, not if you're sad, you know, that that's too much for me. And we want to be able to say, no, like people of color and native people have their hands full <laughs> dealing with all of this, this mess. They don't need to teach it to us. They just need to, whatever, whatever they choose to share, we need to be ready to hear it and we can support one another to hear it. But too often white people tear each other down. And I know this because in my early 20s, I was tearing people left and right. It was like, you know, I feel guilty about racism. I feel angry about what happened in South Africa. I feel angry about our history. So I'm going to make my dad feel guilty. And I'm going to make all my grad students feel guilty. And like, if I find, if I meet a white person, I'm going to make them feel guilty. And then I, I had this experience where I saw one of my grad students walking down the street and I was going to, I was going to say hi. And they saw me and like ducked into a store because you could tell they were like, she makes me anxious. She makes me feel bad about myself. And I don't want to talk to her. And I knew that feeling because I'd had that experience with other people before too. And what we're trying to say is that it's, it doesn't help when white people tear each other down. We we do this thing where we compete to be the best white person or the most anti-racist white person as if it's going to be enough for there to be one anti-racist white person in an institution or in an organization or in a state, you know, we're trying to say we need millions of white people to walk an anti-racist path for generations. This is, and not just like in a, it's not, not like in a mass movement kind of way in a daily practice. And so what that means is that we have to be able to be there to support each other, to hear the things that are going on in this conversation and to lean in and say, I know it, it's hard to hear this or it's hard to make mistakes or it's hard to get called out or whatever is happening. Um, but to support one another and to challenge one another so that people of color um, and native people can speak their truths in whatever way they choose to. Um, and, and action comes from it rather than more stalemate. Yeah. I hear you both saying, you know, again, talking about the power of story, uh, your own story, the stories of others and and letting, uh, I mean, it's partly why we started this podcast was just the power of story. And it's, it's not just in, in writing necessarily, but also in any art form expression, letting people tell the stories, even when there's a lot of rough edges, because I think it kind of backdoors truth. It's like, you can't, I mean, you can deny it and you can't say, oh, that's not true. And, you know, that's not what happened to you. Or if you just let it be what it needs to be, it starts kind of percolating something in your mind and your heart where you go, wow, I, I had no idea. Like, <laughs> you know, I had no idea that you were treated like this. Um, so my story growing up in a very multicultural, you know, Los Angeles, going to a very, uh, you know, multicultural school, but a couple of my, my buddies in high school were African-American and, um, and I thought, oh, okay, I, I grew up around different cultures. I get it. Um, but we were, uh, driving one day he got pulled over. He's an African-American and the way he got treated by the police was a lot different than the way I got, I get treated by the police. And so through our conversations, I just, I just was talking to him about it. And I, he said, uh, he said, Hey, has your dad ever had the talk with you? And I said, the talk, like the sex talk, like, <laughs> like, well, no. Uh, but he's like, no, not the sex talk. He's like, as an African American man, it's basically my dad telling me like, you need to be careful around police. You need to not be the only person at a party. If there's a bunch of white people there, you need to be careful what neighborhoods you go into. And this was the talk, <laughs> like mm -hmm. a talk I would, I've never had, will never have from you know my upbringing. And I remember just having this moment of, and then, well, about 20 years later, I, I saw five African American men at a conference talk about the same thing. And, and this was like, 
a few years ago, like talking about, you know, people spray painting the side of their house in like suburban Atlanta. And you're like, this is 2000, you know, 18, this isn't, you know, 1963. Um, And so a couple of those stories, like just have really stuck with me of just how it's changed me in the sense of not that I, I, Oh, I get it now. And I'm, you know, I'm, but it's a little bit what you guys are saying is like the power of how do we re kind of re narrative restory people to help them kind of see a bigger picture of what's really going on and, and letting people tell their stories of like, Hey, this is how it is. This is what it's like. And it's like, Whoa, I had no idea because I think that that kind of gets us to the empathy part where real change can happen, where we actually desire to see things change. We actually desire to support each other and help each other. Cause I don't, I don't think if it's just information, it's going to get there. So there's, you know, what are the creative ways we can kind of help get these stories out there? And I think, you know, James Baldwin, Tony Morrison, all those folks, I mean, they were trying to do that through art and through other creative means, which I think was still lingers, you know, and as now coming more to the forefront. Um, now, uh, just to switch gears, a couple, uh, couple gears, should I say shift a couple gears is, uh, you guys talk about myths in the book, uh, myths about talking about race and racism. And would you guys mind sharing just a couple of those? Because I, I think that's gets at a little bit of the heart of this bigger conversation that we're having is like the fear behind it and even talking about it in the first place, but you guys lay out some myths. Can you, can you share some of those with us? Yeah, I mean, there are tons of myths of of that come out of white supremacy, as Eleanor was talking about earlier. But the five that really shape how white people talk with one another about race um, are, you know, first, it's rude to talk about race. You should be colorblind. This is what I grew up with, this this mm-hmm. yeah. um, insistence about not talking about race. And we're trying to say, no, talking about race is not racist. <laughs> we're not going to be able to change racism if we don't talk about race. Um, the second one is we can we can and we should be perfect or we should at least appear to be perfect. And I think this is, you know, any white student who's ever gone to college might have experienced this. This is like a big vibe in college, like just pretend to have done the reading, just pretend to be perfect. And um, and we want to say, no, 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 no. We're going to all make mistakes. And, and And rather than trying to be perfect, we need to learn how to make mistakes and just fall and recover quickly. Um, this is a. A metaphor that a friend of mine uses, it's like a, a figure skater who, you know, like a figure skater doesn't get good at doing a triple axel the first time they do it. They fall a hundred times probably before they are able to do that move. And so that's what we need to think of this as a skills-based competency that we need to practice and that we're, we're going to make mistakes. And when we do, we can say, okay, now I'm one step closer to being competent. And what I need is feedback to help me see these mistakes and keep going. The third one is that we need to compete with one another and we should win. I should be the best anti-racist. And so if you're, if you say something racist, I should take you out because I'm the anti-racist. So I'm anti-you. And we're saying, no, it's not, you're not anti, it's anti-racism doesn't mean you're anti a person. It means you're anti a system. And we're all stuck in that system. And I can put you down in order to elevate me, but we're both at the end of the day, still white people in a racial hierarchy. So rather than competing with one another, let's work together to dismantle the system, to interrupt the system, rather than to um, like just try to look good by calling each other out. The fourth one is that um, it's better to think about racism rather than feel about it. And this, I think, often comes because so many white people learn about racism theoretically. So I learned about it in college. You know, I learned about it 
from books, from beloved. You know, most people of color and native people learn about racism and white supremacy through their bodies, through their families, through their lived experience, the way you did in that car that night with your African-American friend. It's a very different experience when you're feeling it than when you're thinking about it. And so um, this is where Eleonora's work is so important because she gives us tools to really be able to feel it um, uh, rather than just intellectualize. And then the last one is just that race, this whole thing we're talking about, race and racism, is not actually real. It's a social construction. We made up the categories white and black. We made up race as a as a way to categorize people. And then in the U.S., we assigned value to those categories and assigned resources and opportunities or lack thereof to those categories. Um, and this one's really important because in anti-racist, like what we're trying to do with anti-racism is talk about race so that we can undo racism. But we have to understand the whole time we're doing it that we're talking about a, an artificial category because it's actually white supremacists who believe that race is real, that we're biologically separate, that white people should be separate from people of color, um, that um, we're actually biologically capable of different things, that white people are more intelligent, that black people are more athletic, Asian people um, are better at math. I mean, we have these like weird stereotypes about different groups um, that don't make any sense when you recognize that race is a social construction. Um, but we, if we're going to be anti-racist, we need to recognize um, that we're often more alike across racial differences than we are like people in our own group. And that we, um, and that the idea that we're fundamentally separate, you know, people will say like, oh, well, different types of birds mate with their own group of bird, you know, like robins mate with robins, eagles mate with eagles. They're all birds, but you don't see them mixing. It's like, no, we're not birds. We're not different species. We are fundamentally all human beings. And so we need to understand how much race is a part of people's identities and communities and experiences and how much racism has shaped their lives. Um, but that fundamentally these categories are, are, are bunk. Yeah. And that, I think that's the, you know, the story part too, right. It's like, we just can't escape that deep embedded. Um, Cause I think it's easy. Like I, that's why I say, I'll use the word grace is like to be grace, gracious to people that if we grew up, you know, hundred, 150, 200 years ago, like to say, Oh, I wouldn't be racist. I would, you know, I would have somehow escaped <laughs> that narrative. Well, you know, that's, that's nice and all, but the reality is like you, you would have grown up with the same stories and the same, you know, conversations about, well, we're superior because X, Y, Z or whatever story they were told. Right. So, so it's like, we need to be great, gracious. I remember sitting with my grandparents and, you know, depression era, uh, you know, great people, loving people, humble people, but the, the things that would come out of their mouth, I was always <laughs> blown away. And again, I, I, you know, as a young kid thinking like I stood above them, like, but you know, like I could do the same thing, but you go like, they were a, very much a product of their time. And that was the stories that they heard. Right. It's like, Ryan, can you believe all the, you know, X, Y, Z people live, living in the neighborhood? And you're just like, grandma, like, what are you talking about? You know? And I, and I know when you get older, sometimes the filters come off and you say what you really think and, you know, for good or ill. Uh, but, you know, we realize that just to be gracious with people where they're at and be patient because we're all, we all struggle with it wherever we, you know, come from. Um, no, I appreciate those myths. I think those are really good. And that really got me excited about people getting into your book because, um, you know, we do need to take some of the kind of common 
lingo out and say, you know, the, the whole colorblind thing. Well, I'm not, you know, racist. I got, I work with black people, you know, or whatever, whatever it is. Um, just kind of taking that out of the vernacular. Um, can I make, can I just say, yeah, jump in. like to the point you were just making, I think historically, you know, we can look at like the Jim Crow South and, and look at all the like racist white people that enforce school segregation and other violence. Um, and like, we can say that wouldn't have been me. And, and ideally, we're also learning about the anti-racist white people who were there because there were anti-racist white sure. people all throughout history who we often don't learn about, who are great role models for us. But the truth is that most of us would have been bystanders. And I feel like that's what you're saying is like mm-hmm. most of us, we learned really well this narrative of colorblindness and we would have been bystanders. And that's really the case today. And so many white people are bystanders today, myself included some days, because we don't know what to say. We don't want to get it wrong. Again, we're trying to be perfect. We don't want to offend. So, and it feels scary to step out. And so then we just don't do it. And part of what we're saying is like doing nothing is also not the, it's, it's like also a mistake. So like step forward, make a mistake, get messy, take the feedback. Don't think you have to be perfect. Take action. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you are needed. Whatever your sphere of influence there is a way you can have an anti-racist impact and you, each one of us is needed. Yeah, no, I, I think there's also like, and we won't, it's probably beyond the scope of your book. Uh, there's just a, uh, a fear of um, you, you're not the cardinal sin of our culture is you can't change your mind on anything. And so uh, it's, it's just a weird day where like, you're not allowed to like, Oh, actually I see things differently where I didn't before. I mean, it sounds like that's a love of your story, uh, Ali and Eleanor, like um, just through your experiences and, you know, school and, and cultures and living in different places. Like for some reason, we're not allowed to do that. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know what, what, what stems from that, but I think that creates some fear, like whether it's online or whether like, you know, I used to think this, but now I think this. And it's like, yeah, you, I mean, we all should, we all should be growing and evolving and maturing. Like you shouldn't think the same things you did when you were eight, you know, <laughs> when you're a grown man or woman or, you know, whatever. Um, but somehow we're not allowed to do that. So um, just an, uh, so, some interesting dynamics at play there. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly some of what shows up in the group in the inner work. For example, we talk about right on this topic, the concept of fixed and growth mindset by Carol Dweck. Mm-hmm. And a fixed mindset great, is when we book. think our qualities, great book, right? Yeah. So our qualities are fixed and we can change them and they are assigned at birth and every action you make is a is a manifestation of that so if you think you don't have it and who who among us is white people i think we're all the skilled at talking about racism and intervening probably very few so if we think that we can't learn then we'll not act because every action by definition is going to reveal that we are racist and a couple of ways in which there's so many ways in which we hope the book will really flip some narratives. One is what Ali mentioned, uh, so our problem, uh, as white people. And so not only we, we can do something, we should do something, we must do something. And it, it takes us out of that paralysis. I think the trauma informed lens has this beautiful way of flipping the question from the question that it's usually asked for white people. What's wrong with you? <laughs> How could you not? How could you? And And the way we flip that question in trauma work is what happened to you? What happened to you? So I remember really having the question come to life for me when I saw some pictures of some horrible 
scenes of lynching from the 50s or 40s. And I saw especially one with this white woman looking back and smiling. Now, if you open the diagnostic manual on mental disorder, you would say that that's an antisocial behavior. If you're harming some living being and you take pleasure in it, that's a purely antisocial personality. And you have some damage in the uh, areas of your of your brain that have to do with empathy and connection and so on. That's a disorder. So when people say that the racism is a disorder, I think it's true. But also, it's just not possible that we have that many people with that personality disorder. It's just not statistically possible. I said, it's not possible that this many people are supporting white supremacists out of what's wrong with them. And that's what opened up the question for me, how... How else can we understand how we got to this point from a psychological perspective? So that if I'm just bad, I can't change. I can learn. I just need to stop, you know, shut up and die eventually. Um, but if you're asking what happened to you and we in this book talk exactly to you about what happened to you and how to begin on doing that and working with that with compassion for yourself and others, then all of a sudden you have a lot to give <laughs> and you have a lot to contribute and you have a lot to teach others and you have a lot to join. And so Flipping the narrative, it's actually an uh, incredible primer for, for from going to inaction to action, from paralysis to mobility, from not belonging in a conversation to completely belonging in a conversation. So we're really hoping that this book is going to inspire people and galvanize people out of paralysis, out of the question of what am I supposed to do, which is really a panic question, not a real question, um, which we all have had, Ali and I included many times, you know, and we hold each other <laughs> and we have those questions. Uh, but And into, oh, no, I know how to do it. I know exactly how to practice to get out of that paralysis. I actually, in fact, you know exactly how that paralysis came about. And lo and behold, the same tools that I teach you <clears throat> to become uh, more effective, your anti-racism, actually, they're anti-anxiety tools. So you'll feel better in the rest of your life. <laughs> so yeah. hopefully it's a, it's a, it's a general pill. <laughs> yeah, they're probably all connected, I imagine. Um, so uh, now it, it would uh, behoove us if we didn't talk about some of the creative process of on the creator, uh, the prolific creator podcast. Um, because I, I always love when uh, co-writing teams uh, now, obviously it's, there's a deep love for each other. I can tell and a, a deep friendship. So I don't think that's an issue. Uh, but when you are writing something, especially on a topic like this, I mean, you're not writing a novel together. You're writing some, some serious, uh, you know, anti-racism, you know, addressed at white people, which again is a very mild conversation, mild topic to get into. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about how, how did you decide one, you want to write it together, but also what did that look like as far as kind of getting the book uh, moving in the right direction? I mean, it was it you write this chapter, I write that chapter, you know, I'll write most of it, you check it, you know, how, how did that, how did that kind of writing relationship uh, work? It was so messy. It was so <laughs> messy and it was beautiful because we would just, we tried so many different ways. And every time we try something, we just say, it's okay, we'll figure it out. You know, should we write the chapters together? We ultimately decided that they're really separate. I mostly do external work. Uh, Eleonora mostly does internal work. And we found that, um, I mean, before we even started this, one of the reasons that we we started this project together is that we would talk, we we talk, 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 talk. <laughs> we walk in the woods and talk during COVID about all the things that are coming up for me with my clients and the things I'm seeing with other white people and things I want to write about and talk about and ways I respond. 
And Eleonora would, I'll just commit bringing it back to, yes, but you respond that way because this is happening for you internally. So she'd bring her therapist lens. Mm -hmm. This is happening. This is the way, oh, that's beautiful. You're grounding yourself. And meanwhile, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just, this is my instinct. This is what I do. And she's saying, no, there is, the thing is people need to know, not just the words you're saying about like, what you should say or how you should strategize, but what you're doing internally. And for me, so much of that was happening kind of in a second nature way that was invisible to me that I was like, can you just, I mean, I can't explain what she says. It's just, it's like beyond me, but it's so powerful to see that there's a physiological explanation for all of it. Um, But there was one other thing I wanted to talk about that has been really valuable for me in writing, Mm -hmm. which is um, this idea because we were writing during COVID. My kids were homeschooling for the entire year. Um, it was very time consuming <laughs> to have children who are, you know, need, you're their only friend mm-hmm. and all, you know, everybody's at home. And um, I've always wanted to have a writer's shed. That was like my dream to build a writer's shed and go there and write and just have peace. And it was clear that th- this was never going to happen. And I started thinking about this concept from Judaism that Shabbat or the day of rest is actually a sanctuary in time. You don't need a building. You don't need a place to go. What you need is time that is set aside for something you know, sacred and, and unique for, for actual rest, where you feel none of the pull of the rest of the week. And so I thought, I'm going to build a writershed in time. And so every Sunday morning for the whole Sunday morning and every Thursday, the whole day was like my writer's shed in time. And I was really protective of those days. Um, And then those and then we would meet on Wednesday afternoons and on Fridays so that we could kind of process what was happening with the book. But then on those at those times, I could kind of go into my writer's shed in time, which is just my boring office and um, and and let my mind uh, wander through all of this stuff. And during the rest of the week, I was applying it through online seminars and working with teachers. And, um, so things were, you know, generating, but I had to have that space to record it and put it down. When you said you were going to write a, uh, build a shed, I thought you were going to talk about the garage. (laughs) So we spent many hours in Alan's garage, sitting across from a table with blankets and heaters and talking and typing. Um, and I think really what we have done, and it was not a linear process at all, but we wanted to keep the dialogue version of what we sort of how we how this concept emerged in the woods by walking, we tried to keep that same format in the book. So Ali would write a section and we knew pretty much what the main concepts on my side were going to be. And then we were figuring out, so what of uh, the inner work was coming up in each chapter and what will make sense, what will help the reader in that chapter to be able to absorb it and, and digest it. What kind of inner work do they need to to make it operational? It's sort of when you need, it's, it's like a chemistry portion. What do you need to, to, um, uh, make a, a a substance come alive, you know, and so we did that, and then we there was as much cut and pasting I think as the as as there can be. Uh, it was edited until the very last minute, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and really was iter- iterative process in a way that I think we came ourselves, and I want to speak for you, Ali, but we came ourselves out of writing much clearer. And perhaps we didn't expand the view how the two came together because it really started from conversation and we grew with the book. 
Yeah, here. So two things uh, going back to you, Ali, as far as a writing shed. Uh, I mean, that's a lot of thing we we preach around here is not necessarily the the literal writing shed, but a way to tell yourself like this is a sacred thing. Like this, what I'm doing right here matters. And so whether that's going in, locking yourself in the bathroom or the garage or going outside, you know, making that time sacred. And it's funny because in creativity, we put everything else on the calendar, but when it comes to creativity, somehow we don't think that's, you know, we, we don't schedule it. So I love that Sunday, uh, would you say Sunday, Thursday, you know, just saying like, this is, it, it tells your body, like when I sit here, when I go here, this is what I'm doing. It's not to check email. It's not to do social media. It's not to, you know, do whatever. Um, that's important because I think it, it kind of tricks you into like this, this matters. This is the work I'm going to be doing right yeah. here, right now. So that's really good. Um, and then uh, the other thing um, I liked uh, just where you guys were talking about conversation that you kind of, at, uh, it sounds like at some point decided it needs to be conversational because that's kind of what we do. And we talk about these things where um, uh, we want to kind of just share what we're so it's like an ongoing conversation. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges of writing a book is, you know, what's the tone? What, what's, you know, is it going to be more academic? Is it going to be more two friends having coffee and talking that, you know, because uh, I had a vir- virologist, I said, um, he was talking about the pandemic uh, a few weeks ago and he wrote a book, uh, Dan Werb, and he talked about using a lot of stories of actual like doctors and ER uh, nurses, uh, people that were really going through it with the pandemic and continue to, um, rather than just giving information. And so he made a, made a, made a big decision to say, this is going to be more powerful to tell stories about how we've been thinking about these things for a lot of years and the things that people have been going through, as opposed to just, here's a bunch of information about viruses and here's what we, you know, that's not that exciting, you know? Uh, yes. So, um, so I appreciate you sharing that a little bit of the craft, a little behind the, behind the scenes. Um, now you have to tell me, was there a moment where both of you were like, we can't do this. Uh, this is crazy. Uh, Cause I feel like everybody comes to that moment at some point. Um, have we lost our minds to think we can do this? Did you have that? Or was there just confidence in all the way through? You know, one of the things that we say you need on the anti-racist path is someone who sees the best in you. And I think Ali is the most brilliant human that's ever walked this earth. And I think she has a lot of admiration for my work. And I think when one of us will lose confidence again, you know, we have this beautiful expression in Italian, you get lost in a glass of water. <laughs> You're drowning in a glass of water. And uh, when we would do that with our own process, then the other person would, could see through it and could actually say, no, 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 this is so important. You don't understand. I can see all this context in which if we only had this tool, it would make such a difference. And the, and the tone it was such a beautiful point that you talked about the tone well we wanted to, to give the sense that we are doing that with anybody who reads this book we are in the same process I don't care how much I teach about a nervous system and I train people to work with the nervous system I have the same nervous system my nervous system tricks me just like anybody else's nervous system I'm just as human uh, so as my teenage daughter will tell you mm-hmm. <laughs> any minute of the day um, and so What's so what's so important is that we learn to welcome each other into this process and really realize it's a process. So I think that's what we were doing with each other. I don't know if you have other recollection, Ali, of moments. And the only thing I'll add is that I think that real periods, the times of doubt were when we would say things like, well, who are we to write this as like two white women, you know, or who are we to be saying this? And, and, and that's when we'd have to remind each other of like all of the people of color and native people we've worked with who've said, 
can you come talk to my teachers? Can you come talk to my group? Can you talk to this board? We, we like in, and share these skills that you have. We need this. We need more white people to be doing this. Can you, you know, and can you write this down somewhere? And so we have to, because I think we, we question a lot. Like, is this, is this a legitimate way for us to be anti-racist, like to be creating this book? Um, and what we realize is like there are specific things that we as white people need to learn in terms of our role. We often need modeling from other white people. What does it look like to learn? Like you said, change your mind, get feedback, make mistakes, be stay humble. Um, and and so like we do, we we ultimately came, Ellie and Nora would say, Ellie, the world is ending. We need to put <laughs> it down so that people have skills to deal with the fact that the world is ending, you know, because it was, it really felt that way in, in, um, in 2020. And, um, and so we're, you know, we're just, uh, we're trying to reach out to other folks and say like, don't get stuck there. Cause we almost got stuck there. <laughs> who are, who am I to do this? And we want to say, who are you not to do this? Who are you not to take anti-racist action to build health, to be, and you know, when I say take anti-racist action, it's not like, that sounds so big and intimidating. It's like, who are you not to wake up every day and walk an anti-racist path to contribute to your multiracial community in some way that makes it healthier and stronger and better and full of love, more full of love. Right on sister. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think uh, I just heard Stephen Pressfield say that if, if you're, extremely scared and there's tons of fear that you're actually doing the thing you should be doing. Mm. Um, it's, if it's easy, if it's comfortable, there's probably something else you should be doing. And so mm-hmm. that fear, learning how to dance with it is, is part of the, um, uh, it, it kind of tells us it, I think it speaks to us pretty loudly. Like, Nope, you're on the right path. It's, it's going to be hard. Yeah. Who are you to do this? Who are you? I mean, every book I've written is like, who am I to say anything about anything? Um, so no, I, I appreciate your, your candor in that. Um, now, I do have to, I want to be sensitive to your time. So I do want to kind of close our time with, uh, you need to, you need to share. We've talked a lot about stories, uh, but you need to, you need to give me a couple of stories. Cause I know you guys have been doing a lot of interesting work for a lot of time, a uh, long time, and you've been good friends and uh, fighting the good fight. And I know with Ali, you're working with kids and, and teachers and doing different things. And um, give us some just stories of success, stories of like, we've seen some, we've seen good, good come from these conversations. I know the, I think as we are talking, the book isn't live yet, but I think by the, actually by the time this podcast goes live, it'll probably be ready for, uh, consumption. Uh, but yeah, even before the book comes out to so give us some, some stories of, of hope for us. Well, I recently worked with a board of an organization that mainly serves native communities. And there were a couple of native board members who were really struggling to have their voices heard, feeling very demoralized. And um, in our work together, um, part of what I did was an exercise that just helped people tap into their own experiences of feeling marginalized, of feeling like nobody understands you or like everybody's going one way and you're going the other way. And, um, and we just, you know, we did a four hour session where we just really, um, Mm -hmm. tried to build the empathy skills that Eleonora talks about. Um, and in the end, I feel like there was a, there was like a whole transformation of how people understood how they serve native communities, that native communities are sovereign nations that are, that actually have profoundly different even governing structures than the rest of the country that they have treaty rights that are um, that have never been honored 
in in U.S. history, and that the Native people on their board really um, could be an asset to helping them understand that, but that they couldn't they couldn't hear their truth because it was so fundamentally threatening at the at first. And so the um, the the success of that was that the non-native people really were able to build empathetic connection in that time. And, and um, I think it's going to transform the work they do serving native communities in that state. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. There's nothing. Yes. There's nothing more gratifying to me is to start a conversation with a ton of tension in the room and, you know, frozen, frozen faces and then realize halfway to it that the ice is melting and people are beginning to feel like, oh, I can talk about this. I can do this. And so oftentimes I'm called to speak and train uh, counselors or mental health providers in general. Uh, in, in, in academic programs, and I'm often invited by faculty or colleagues, please speak to my white students. <laughs> and so I come in, and as a white person, I kind of have a sense of what the white path is to go um, as we try to live an anti-racist uh, life. And so usually when I ask in advance, well, what, what are you afraid of? What do you want to learn? Well, I'm going to say the wrong thing, and I'm going to make the mistakes, and I'm going to look at this and look at that. And and then when I humanize the process and say, of course you do. <laughs> Let's look at what we were taught. You're a great student. You're very smart. Why wouldn't you? You have empathy. Of course, you feel bad when you do what we call the moral injury, when you violate your own moral code. Um, that's good. That's a good thing. So the whole point is that we can have tools to digest it, to grieve together the pain of seeing so much harm being done in our name, especially as white women. I think a lot of harm is done in our name. And um and all of a sudden, you have this sense of possibility. The room opens up, people relax, and there is this joy. Oh, you don't work together with this. And maybe they're doing an internship in the same place and say, oh, you know, we could do this one group and we could do this process, the, the, the information this way with this one supervisor. And, and, um, and all I did is, it's okay, we can do this. That's basically how I flipped the narrative. Rather than say, yes, you're a bad person, you feel really, really bad and you're unmovable. Say, no, of course you, of course that's where you're at. How could it be otherwise? How could it be? So these are the tools. Let's do it together. I walk this path like, just like you do every day. I'm no better than you are. I just simply have done a couple of times longer, but I still fall all the time. And just that energy of possibility in a world that tells us that we are doomed and it's over. You know, I always say history is nothing but a long stream of miracles. <laughs> you know, the, the saying that says, um, proceed as if success is inevitable. That's the sense that I want to give to folks who are trying to enter the path because the message they're given is actually the exact opposite. And in fact, they have to believe that what they can do, first of all, they can do it. And everything they do and will do matters a lot. And as much energy as somebody puts into convincing you that what you do doesn't matter is exactly because in fact, it does matter. I think what I hear both of you saying is that in some ways you're, you're kind of, someone said, you know, stewards of stories and what you're carrying around are these stories of you can do this and this is how things are. And this is this things we've seen and experiences and people have gone through hard things, but to continue to share those stories, I think is really important. Uh, so I love books and stories and, and interactions because, you know, they'll, they'll, this book will carry on long, but long after you're gone. And that's, that's the gift, um, you know, to keep the conversation going. So, uh, so uh, as this goes live, I'm going to bank on that your book will be live. Uh, so where's the best place that they can find your book and find you and your work? So you can find us at allymichael.org. 
or Dr. Eleonora Bartoli, just do every vowel, uh, at bartoli.com Or we recommend bookshop.org, which is an online service that will deliver books right to your house. And it will also make a donation to your local uh, bookstore. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'll put that in the show notes so everybody can get that and go buy the book. Uh, it looks fantastic. And of course, on the on the Corbin website too. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. And we will uh, check those check those books out and uh, yeah, and keep the conversation going. Uh, well, Eleonora and Allie, um, this has been the highlight of my week, and I'm not just saying that. Uh, this has helped me probably more than it's helped you. Uh, so thank you for challenging me and and just the in in a in a difficult subject, but I appreciate. Uh, your insight, your perspective. I appreciate you doing the hard work of writing a book, uh, which is just hard in itself, let alone on a topic like this. And I know this conversation and your book is going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for all your great questions. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it, my friends. Oh my goodness. That was amazing. A lot to unpack, a lot to think about, a lot to reflect on. Uh, I thank Eleonora and Allie for their boldness, their willingness to tackle such a difficult subject and to share their book with the world. And so go check it out. It's in the show notes. And I hope it's an encouragement and inspiration to you to share your story, to share the stories you have, the messages you have, the things that you value, the things you find important. Uh, the world needs your art. The world needs your story and the world needs your message. And so give yourself permission. We're giving you permission to tell those hard stories that, that might be uncomfortable, but they're worth telling. So want to say before we go, uh, just a couple things, leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps us get the world, get the world, get the episode out into the wild. And so I appreciate those, all the kind words, all the feedback. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also share it with a friend. Uh, it's a great way to share these episodes, share these conversations, and uh, hopefully it helps some other people. And also, you might have heard, uh, just we have a new um, program where you can get the Prolific Creator Plus with some extra added bonuses, some ad-free experience. So go check that out. It's only like three bucks or five bucks a month, depending on which plan you get. But yeah, we're trying that out, seeing how that works, and uh, hopefully you enjoy that as well. So... Again, this is uh, Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast signing off. And before I go, I do have one more thing to say. Go make some great art.